of all of the things that the world may say, God has the last word on what can change hearts and lives forever. Easter celebrates that Jesus is alive, and you and your family are invited to celebrate with us. Learn all about Passion Week and Easter services at mcgregor.net. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. There, our Genesis foundation sprang from the will and word of the great I Am. Woven deep into these foundations are rich truths of God and man, sin and righteousness, life and death, and everything else of ultimate consequence. What God started in Genesis is now settled and completed in Christ Jesus. From time to time, we sing. There is strength within the sorrow. There is beauty in our tears. And you meet us in our mourning with a love that casts out fear. You are working in our waiting, sanctifying us when beyond our understanding, you're teaching us to trust. Your plans are still to prosper. You have not forgotten us. You're with us in the fire and the flood. You're faithful forever, perfect in love. You are sovereign over us. When we sing that, we're right. <laughs> we come this morning to Genesis chapter 8 and the, the end of Noah's flood. I am so thankful for my brothers on the teaching team that have, that have walked us through these previous chapters and this, this cataclysmic event. Uh, we've, we've, we've joked in sermon planning, and I think the brothers have said from up here that, that um, you know, it's, it's not that you have to go home and, and necessarily redecorate the nursery or, or the room that you were planning to use as a nursery, but if you're, if you're going forward, let's, let's do this. Let's not do any more of the decorating that, that sometimes gets done with the story of Noah and the happy animal boat ride. Because the flood is not about, you know, two giraffes on the end looking out and the elephant on the other end. The flood was the sheer wrath of an all-powerful God. Because the world had descended to such a point of evil that God in his wrath, destroyed all of humanity, scrubbed the face of the planet in what was up to that time, what in fact is up to this time, the most violent, demonstrative outpouring of his wrath the world has ever seen. By the way, there's worse coming. And it won't be flood, it'll be fire. Dear brother asked me this morning if that future wrath of God coming in fire, did I think it was going to be 
nuclear weapons. And I smiled and shared with that brother, and I loved the question. I shared with that brother, you, you, you forget how many options omnipotence has. Uh, it'll, make, it'll make nuclear weapons look like kids playing with cap guns. When God in his omnipotence unleashes fire, not limited by human invention, but only limited by his restraint even in wrath, which won't be much restrained. That was the experience of those outside the ark. The sheer wrath of God. But inside the ark, during, during this, this, it comes out to be about a year and 10 days. I want to talk about that some on Beyond the Notes this week, the, the chronology of the flood year. We, we know about 40 days and 40 nights, and the brothers have touched upon this in previous weeks, but I'll unpack a little bit more about that in our last sort of Beyond the Notes devoted to the flood. But, but for those inside the ark, it wasn't the wrath of God, it was a trial from God. They're going to come through it. They're going to come through it on earth. And as we, as we dealt with the flood narrative, it's important to remember that this is not some, some fable where we look for, and the moral of the story is. This is not some myth. It is not some metaphor. It is an accurate telling of an historical event. So it is with chapter 8. But history is of little value to us if we don't take lessons from history and learn them. So this morning, I want to I look at some lessons we can learn about our own trials from the trials of those that had come through the flood year and now reached the point when the storm has passed. So Genesis chapter 8, we're going to make our way from verses 1 down to verse 20. I'm going to read it in chunks as we go. What can we learn? Roman numeral one, he is the author of the storm. Verses one through five. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth and the waters subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed. The rain from the heavens was restrained and the waters receded from the earth continually. And at the end of 150 days, the waters had abated. And in the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. And the waters continued to abate until the 10th month. And in the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. Notice, God remembered Noah. Now, that doesn't mean he had forgotten him. It just means that there, there came the time when the, when the living God, viewing, viewing his actions from the perspective of the trial of Noah, his wife, their sons and their wives, when God said, it's enough. Notice that the, the living God made a wind. The heavens, the windows of the heavens were closed. That passive voice verb means they, they didn't just close themselves. The hand of God closed the windows of heaven. The, the rain was restrained. 
It was God's restraining hand. God was the author of this storm. He was the author of its ending. Now, the idea of God as the author of things I don't like is not an idea we're completely comfortable with, and I understand that. But I want to I share with you some scripture. I've listed them there on your outline. These are, these are four of dozens, but for these four. Job chapter 1, verses 20 through 22. On a day of terrible trial, a day where Job had lost essentially all of his net worth and then his children and human servants as well. And on that day, that day of horrific loss, verse 20 of Job 1, Job arose, tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshiped. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And in all this, Job did not sin or charge the Lord with wrong. Job had it right. Amos chapter 3 Verse 6. Is a trumpet blown in the city and the people are not afraid? Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? Planetary flood, loss, disaster in the city. On a more sort of human scale, James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. And then finally for this, Isaiah 45, verses 6 and 7. That people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. There's a, there's a mind frame that sort of makes sense to us intuitively that we can, we can slide into believing sort of when everything is, is kind of going my way and all is well, well, that's God. After all, he loves me a lot. And surely he wants me to be at ease and happy and comfortable and blessed. But boy, when things start to go not great, when I'm in a season I am not enjoying, it must be Satan has me under attack. By the way, sometimes he does. But even Satan's attacks are ultimately a tool in the hand of a sovereign God. 
There's a latent sort of dualism that wants to hang in the air. Dualism is simply put the notion that that there's a very, very strong God on the one hand and he's up to good things that I'll find enjoyable. And there's a very, very strong devil, basically his equal match. On the other hand, it's up to bad things I don't like. And my life is a rope in a tug of war between those essentially equally matched foes. That is wrong, 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 wrong. God is omnipotent, the devil is not. God is omniscient, the devil is not. God is omnipresent, the devil is not. God is omnitemporal, the devil is not. God is uncreated, the devil is a limited created being. And even his shenanigans are under the sway of a sovereign God. His absolute sovereignty, the living God's absolute sovereignty over all things without footnotes. He's over all things, period, end of sentence. Can I tell you that makes me uncomfortable a lot of the time? Because I see that he is up to things I don't understand, and I see that he's doing things <laughs> differently than I would in a lot of cases. The absolute sovereignty of God makes me uncomfortable, but you know what would make me way more uncomfortable? The notion that he's not in charge. I'm glad I don't pray to a God that might not have the ability to answer my prayer. I'm glad I don't serve a God who's still trying to figure it out. Oh, he's sovereign. Now, that often begs the question, why, God? Why are you doing that that way? Why that pain? Why that loss? Why that trial? Why? Why? And if you've not asked why from time to time, you're not paying attention. And sometimes his answer is very like the answer you give sometimes if you're a good parent or a good grandparent. Sometimes you as a parent or grandparent lay things out in a way your little one doesn't like. And sometimes your little one asks why and they cannot handle the answer. They can't grasp your reasoning and your thinking. So parents or grandparents, now there are some who say this is not a good answer to your child's why. Oh yes, it is. It's a perfectly good answer. As long as you have superior judgment and superior authority, this is a lovely, satisfactory, perfectly good answer. When your little one says to you why and they cannot handle the whole answer, what is the perfectly good answer you sometimes give? a chorus of wisdom in the house of God this morning. Because I said so is a lovely answer. Don't you think if you have to sometimes give that answer to a child who doesn't understand, don't you think your heavenly father has that answer available to him as well?
Lord, why? Well, because I said so. But he's so good and he's so gracious. He's told us the ultimate why. Now, you may not know the momentary why, and I'm not, by the way, some of you this morning, the law of averages says in a room this size with this many people in it, some of you right now are going through what may be the most difficult trial of your life. Some of you are in the deep part right now. And if anything I have to say this morning leads you to conclude that I would make fun of your trial or make light of your trial, Forgive me my flawed communication. I do not mean to make light of your trial. But God has told us the ultimate why. He may not give you the momentary why, but the ultimate why. As with everything he's doing, his ultimate why is his own glory. He intends to demonstrate himself as he is to his creation. And the number one thing he is pursuing in all things is his own glory, because he's worth it. And the secondary thing he's up to in the life of all of his children as all things work together for the good of those who love him is your good as he sees it and he's smarter than you are. Knows what you need more than you do. Gets what he's after in a scope you can't comprehend yet. Why? His glory and your good. But it hurts! I know. I know. Three things that are his as the author of the storm. First, the destructiveness of the storm. How much, Lord? How much is this, how much is this trial gonna knock over and break? How, how much am I going to be missing when I come out of this that I had when I went in? The depth of the storm. Lord, how deeply into me is this storm gonna go? Years have passed and wounds have been thoroughly transformed into scars, but I've shared this story before, various bits and pieces of it. Before I came to serve this body of Christ here in Fort Myers, I was the senior pastor of a church in Kentucky and I was not good at it. I was overly powerful and overly power mad. I was mean, I was quick-tempered, quick And I had lost the understanding that my employment was not my identity. Brothers, sisters, don't ever let that happen to you. And I went through what is up to my life today, the most difficult season of my life as that church fell apart under my leadership. Pretty. It's recovered, by the way. She's a great church. If you're ever in Lexington, Kentucky on a Sunday morning, visit the, uh, the Ashland Avenue Baptist Church. Tell them Russell said hi and then watch their faces. <laughs> Some there still love me. If you won't listen to the still small voice and I'm not talking about you, I'm talking about me. 
But if you won't hear the still small voice, God has the great big brick. And I apparently was past listening to the still small voice. God needed to teach me that my identity in him is one thing. Has nothing to do with what I do to earn a living. I am a child of God. I am the husband of Gail. I am the father of Philip and Kyle, and now my daughters-in-law and my grandkids. That is my identity. It's who I am by the grace of God. My calling, I'm a shepherding teacher of God's word, something from which I will never retire. Never, never, I'm, I'm, it's, it's, it's what God has called me to be. My gig, I am blessed to be the lead pastor of the McGregor Baptist Church, and I am blessed to hold that role. But my gig is not my calling, and my calling is not my identity. And I needed to learn that, and apparently I couldn't learn it the easy way. Maybe obvious to you, it was messed up in me. And so something had to burn deeply into me to burn out some stuff that needed to go and burn in some stuff I needed to learn. He is the Lord of the depth of the storm and he is the Lord of the duration of the storm. Lord, how long is this gonna go on? Some of you have got houses that got blasted off their foundation not that many months ago and you're not back to normal yet. Some of you are dealing with illnesses that won't go away. Some of you are dealing with pressures in life and they haven't ended yet. How long? It's a reasonable question. And the big answer is till he puts an end to your trial. The less big answer is I don't know and you don't either. But he'll be Lord of it. Which leads us to Roman numeral two. Only he can provide answers ultimate answers in the storm. He might give us answers that we want and he might give us answers that he don't. This next paragraph was described by Pastor Mark Bricker in our uh, sermon planning meeting as Noah and his scout drones. But he didn't have drones, he had birds. So here go the scout drone birds in Noah's life. At the end of 40 days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made and he sent forth a raven and it went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. Then he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground, but the dove found no place to set her foot. And she returned to him, to the ark, for the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark with him. He waited another seven days and again, he sent forth the dove out of the ark and the dove came back to him in the evening and behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. And then he waited another seven days and sent forth the dove and she did not return to him anymore. Don't you know Noah had questions in that ark? I, I, I imagine the, the day that the ark sat down in wherever it was in that mountain range. And we don't know. We talk about that a bit on the, on the notes as well. But, hey, hey, Dad, it's not, it's not rocking anymore, man. I, it feels real steady. It feels like we're standing in a partially submerged building, not a boat. Can you imagine the questions, letter A on your outline? We want to know 
far more than we need to know. What's it look like out there? What's the lay of the land? How muddy is it? Where, literally, on earth are we? All the questions. We, we want to know way more than we need to know. Hmm. How long till we get to eat something that doesn't come off that pantry shelf over there? We've been in this enormous wooden box for a year. Um, Gail sent me on an errand a couple of evenings ago to Publix. We, we live fairly near a pretty nice Publix. Not that all Publixes aren't nice, but we have a really nice Publix near our house. And part of the errand was in the produce department. And I, you know, I thought about Cain and his offering. And Cain and his offering don't keep me. I'm not God. Don't keep me from appreciating a great produce. I went to, I went to get tomatoes and I got some good ones because we were slicing them for hamburgers. And then I went down a couple other aisles to find some stuff I wanted. And I was standing in the ethnic food aisle. And I like the ethnic food aisle because that food is interesting. And, and at one end of the aisle, you got, you got the, 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 the peppercorns. And on the other end of the aisle, you got the yum yum sauce and everything in between. And I knew this message was coming. And I'm thinking to myself, wow, the stuff I have access to. I just go get it. Lord, thank you that I haven't had to live in a big wooden box with a bunch of smelly animals and limited supplies of food for a year. Lord, when can we grow strawberries? I think that's a great question. Yeah, the Lord doesn't answer that. Let her be. The Lord, the Lord knows that there is one question that is the question on the way to obedience. When can we come out of the ark? When is it go time? You know, the word of God says in Psalm 119, 105, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Your word will tell me what I need to know. Not your word is a set of floodlights that brilliantly illuminate the landscape for miles around, including places I don't ever have to go. Things I never need to know. We want to sometimes impersonate God in his omniscience by seeking to know everything about everything, sometimes even with a, with a side order of gossip and busybodiness, sermon for a different day. <laughs> I've trained a lot of mission teams to go outside the United States and it's always a blessing to get to go and a blessing to get to take some of y'all with us, all of us who do that. I used to ask at the end of a team training meeting, and I've done a bunch of them, at the end of every team training, team training meeting, I used to ask, are there any questions? But I have discovered in recent years that that is the key to making the meeting last twice as long as it should. Not that I mind the questions. But in point of fact, I do not know what we're going to eat for dinner on the fourth night of the trip. You don't need to know that yet either. So I have, I have replaced, are there any questions with a different question about questions? What I now say at the end of the meeting is, do you know what you need to know to do what you need to go do? 
Do you know what you need to know to do what you need to do? His word is a lamp for your feet and a light for your path. And he has given you a place where he is speaking in order that you will know what you need to know to do what you need to do. When can we come out of the ark? When is it over? What's next? Roman numeral three, he is Lord in the aftermath of the storm. Verse 13, in the 601st year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried from off the earth. And Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked and behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out. God said to Noah, go out from the ark. You and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing and every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. And then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. By the way, Pastor David addressed this in his Beyond the Notes this week. That's why he had more than a pair. Or you and I wouldn't know what a dove is. Right? It'd be whoosh in the end of doves on that burnt altar. He had spares. Hmm. After the storm is passed, after the trial, it's worth letter A, looking for new observations. The lay of the land is different. I'm missing some things I was missing. I mean, I had before. I'm seeing some things that might not have been there before. Lord, what am I supposed to have learned? Help me see with clarity to the greatest degree possible the lessons of my trial. Maybe I won't always know why, but maybe I can know what. What has changed? What has been burned out of me that needed to go or burned into me that needed to be there? What around me is different, maybe to never be the same again? Observations. Let it be what's, what new obedience. What, what opportunity now lies before me, Lord? How can I more follow you. You know, the great trial that all who don't know Christ will face is the judgment of God at the end of days and that trial won't end. And this morning he has given you the opportunity to follow him. If you're wondering, what is my next step? If you're outside of Christ, it's not a un, an unclear matter. Because of Christ's death on the cross, you can turn from your sin and trust Jesus Christ by faith and know eternal life if you will do so.
But for those of us who know Jesus, what has your trial taught you in obedience? One of my favorite trial moments in the whole Old Testament is the, the story of Jacob in Genesis 32 wrestling with God. Jacob, whose name means tricky, has been in his life up to that point. If you read his life narrative in Genesis, he's been a slick guy. He's connived and manipulated and tricked his way into all kinds of advantages in life. And again, his name means tricky. He was aptly named. In Genesis 32, his life is interrupted when the, the angel of the Lord, I believe God, the second, the second person of the Godhead, God the Son, shows up one night to wrestle with Jacob. Now here's the deal. If you're wrestling with the living God and it's longer than instantaneous, he's up to something. Because if I ask you how long would it take the living God to pin somebody, you ain't got time to take out your stopwatch before it's done. He wrestled with him all night. You remember what he did at the end of that wrestling match to Jacob? He touched his hip. That's nice and that's what the Bible says. That is true. He nearly ripped his leg off. That's what he did. He popped his femur loose from his pelvis and it never did go back right. And for the rest of his life, Jacob dragged that leg. Not so slick now. Not so tricky now. And if you read on, you'll find within a chapter of that, Jacob is demonstrating empathy that he's never had before. He's entering into the weakness of others in a way that never would have occurred to him before. In fact, I think if you look for the conversion of Jacob, that's the night you find it. Jacob had had some earlier interactions with God, but they were deal-making. You look for a man whose life was going in one direction, who had a phenomenal encounter with the living God, and then whose life went in an entirely different direction. That's what you see when Jacob wrestles with God. What new empathy has God built into you by trial? What new passion to serve him? What new facet of the reflection of the glory of God and the image of Christ in you? New obedience and then a new offering. <laughs> he built an altar. We've had lots and lots of firsts in these early chapters of Genesis, as one would expect. The Old Testament has lots of scripture that refers to altars. This is the first mention of the word altar in your Bible. This is altar 1.0. What can I give the Lord now? What has my trial shown me that I have clung to that maybe it's time to release? Those animals that went up on that burnt offering on that altar had been loved and cared for. Well, at least cared for. I don't even love them. But they'd been cared for by Noah and his family in the year leading up to this for the purpose of being a burnt offering sacrifice to the living God. What can I release that I've clung to? What has my trial taught me in my life? I thought it was essential. But no, in my life, it's givable. It's releasable. God is not wasting pain in your life. He meant what he meant to the population of the planet Earth minus eight people in the flood. He meant to demonstrate his wrath. And for them, no way back. To Noah and his family, he meant to demonstrate 
his mercy in a trial. When your trial is over, you may never know why, but may the lessons of your trial not be wasted.